If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would ask that you open it up to the last chapter and the last section of 1 Thessalonians. We'll begin reading in that book in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible with you in the pew in front of you, you can find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, on page 988 of that black Bible. It is good to be here, and uh, it is frankly strange to be here. This is odd. Um, You all look the same, but you look out of place. So uh, you need to know that there are many people who have worked behind the scenes very, very hard uh, to allow us even the opportunity to be here. Uh, This all started a long, long time ago, and this is sort of the the outcome of it, although it is not the final outcome of it. Um, They have worked very, very hard, and they have tried diligently to make this opportunity that we have to gather together, specifically this day, to be one that is excellent and perfect. We've striven, strived, strove better than I'm doing right now with English to uh, make this a, a, an experience that, that seems like it was set up this way and meant to go forward as it has been. We always want things to be as perfect as they, they can be. For stars to align, for coincidences to be amazing and poignant. Because of that, I kind of wanted to wait I wanted to wait maybe another week, and then we could have joined together and launched the, the building here and launched our, our worshiping God in this place by starting a new book. It'd be an, an easy way to kind of come together and say, hey, this is great, but unfortunately or fortunately, we end First Thessalonians today even as we launch out on this new location. I could have possibly waited a couple of weeks Uh, and desired to wait a couple of weeks so that it would kind of correspond with my anniversary here at the church, that that four years I've been preaching at this church, four years I've been a pastor at this church, and it'd be nice for those things to kind of fit together, um, for that little coincidence, that providence to have come together that way. Nevertheless, it doesn't always work the way we want to, but as God is always good to us, it works the way that it should. And we get today, at the end of 1 Thessalonians, an incredibly helpful passage, especially as we are coming together in something of a newness, something of a new place, and a new start for us. Even as we are continuing what we've done before, and and the very nature of our church doesn't change, certainly there is a newness about what we are doing. It is good, then, to be reminded of these very important truths about what a church ought to be and what we ought to be doing what Paul writes here as these final instructions to the Thessalonians are helpful, punchy, and poignant reminders of what the church ought to be. So let us go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and hear these basic and yet important instructions for every church. And begin reading in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. 
abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all of the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's good, righteous, and unfallible word. First thing I would like to point out to you, friends, this morning from this passage about the basic instructions that churches are to have as they walk forward is to first love the leaders of the church. You are to love the leaders of the church. This means, and it comes with both obligations and privileges for every one of us, the obligations for those who are not leaders are first to respect those leaders. The word is actually a really well-known word. It's simply the word to know. You are to know the leaders. It seems strange that the ESV would translate it as respect, but respect is a really good way to put what Paul is getting at. Remember that this church was incredibly young. Paul was there maybe three weeks, and after he left, there needed to be some sort of leadership structure put in place. And so it wasn't that Paul had a huge amount of elders that kind of traveled with him, that he said, okay, now you're going to stay here and you're going to come with me a little further and then you're going to stay there, so that Paul had in place a bunch of people under him that he was able to put over these churches and lead them and rule them and guide them. But rather, the people who were leaders in this church were people who were pulled from the very congregations themselves. Now, it's strange that three-week-old church would be producing its own leaders, but Paul had no other options. And so the idea was that you are to know those people who are indeed your leaders. And by knowing them, you acknowledge that they're your leaders. It's not just a head knowledge. You're not just mentally supposed to say, yes, Frank is our leader, or Frank is our elder, or Frank is our pastor. But you are to actually act like they are your leaders. And in that sense, give them respect. It's difficult, given the historical situation, for us to see the same sort of comparison to where we are today. Because that situation is kind of unique. Now, there are churches who have people come up in them and then work with the pastors who are there, and eventually they become pastors of their home churches. But that is becoming more and more irregular today. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. We send people out to seminaries to get education, and oftentimes those people that are sent out from home churches don't end up pastoring the very churches that they got sent out from. And so churches are taking in people that they didn't see grow up in the Lord. Because of that, consequently, it makes it seem like these pastors have things put together in their lives more. They, they didn't have to watch as these men who are now leading them stumbled and fumbled through their teenage years. They didn't have to watch them worry and work at their faith they didn't see the doubt on their face during their teenage years. They didn't watch as they, they stumbled through their early 20s. They get them fully formed, as it were. And Paul instructs this church to recognize them, but we also need to realize that that recognition, that respect that those elders are supposed to be given is not a veneration. They come from the same 
pews that you're sitting in now. They came from the same place where you are. So as much as Paul would look at the Thessalonians and say, these are regular, if only holy men, you need to implore them as leaders. You need to see them as leaders. We must also see them as leaders, but we likewise must also know that they are regular and sometimes unholy men. The leaders will fail you, but nevertheless, they are to be respected. And secondly, the obligation is, is not just a respect, but a high estimation of them. You are to esteem them highly, and you are to do so in love. Not just to respect their position, not just to respect or esteem their power or their stature or whatever else people do when these celebrity pastors become famous and they run rompshot over churches. You are to esteem them highly in love. It is your love for them that esteems them highly. We need to understand something very clearly. Paul is not telling you to esteem them highly in love because these men naturally deserve it. It is not a matter of whether they deserve it or not. Paul is not asking you to judge the level of love and esteem that you are to have for your leaders. Rather, he says you are to highly esteem them in love, not because they deserve it, but because they need it. These are men who are prone to fail. These are men who are prone to become disheartened. They need your affection, they need your aid, and they need your prayers. If Paul, the very one who saw the risen Lord Jesus, if Paul, who was taken up to the third heaven, needed to look at the Thessalonians and say, brothers, pray for us, as he does in verse 25, do you not think that your leaders need your affectionate love and prayer from you? These are obligations that God puts on the people. But those obligations also come with privileges. You are not just obliged to do things for your leaders, but your leaders ought to be doing things for you. This comes with privileges. The first one is simply that your leaders ought to labor for you. They ought to work hard for you. They are not like people who rise up to the top of corporations or of government or bosses that simply pass off all the difficult and thankless tasks on their underlings. Those who lead within the church ought to be those who labor the most in the church. That is how it ought to work. This is true, especially of pastors, not only who are paid by the church, but of those who are paid by others. You realize that Richard has worked his entire life, now retired, I'm sure he says, thankfully, under his breath, he worked his entire life so that he could serve here without burdening any of you to make his livelihood. Josh is in the middle of doing that currently. They labor while they work for you. Paul, of course, did the same thing. Back in verse 9 of chapter 2, he makes that very clear. For you, remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. That Paul labored. If we were being cheeky, we would say that, that his work was intense, both because he was a tent maker. Thank you, Meredith. That was for you. Uh, both because his labor was incredibly difficult, but also because he just he did this work on the side. There wasn't anything particular holy about making tents. 
but he did it so that these Thessalonians wouldn't be burdened by him. So friends, you are indeed to work hard, but you are to work hard for Christ, and you are to work hard for the Lord. You are not to work hard for your elders. Your elders work for you. The privileges include their labor, but it also includes their care. They ought to care for you. Now, the ESV puts this as they stand over you. The Holman, something along the sides of of leading you. For those of you who are reading in the NIV, you're a little puzzled by that because the NIV reads that they care for you. This word is probably bendy enough to encompass all those ideas. That these are people who stand above you, who actually lead you, who guide you and direct you. But part of that guiding and that caring is, or guiding and leading is caring for you. This is the privilege of, of having good pastors. And I do say good because there are plenty of examples of bad pastors who are not out there trying to lead sheep. They are trying to fleece sheep. They are feasting on their sheep. But this is the privilege of having good and godly pastors, that they are here to care for you. Imagine what life must be like for people outside the church. People who think that they can navigate the Christian life, they can walk through the Christian life, and they can handle everything on their own. Realize that they have no one working for them. They have no one laboring for them. They have no one caring for them full-time, as people of this church do. Men who are given to studying, to leading, to guiding, and to praying for those people specifically. Sure, they, they probably have a few people, maybe a men's group or a women's group that they get together with, and maybe their families do this. And maybe they can catch pastors on TV. And maybe they can get good teaching that way. But John Piper is not laboring for you. He labors for the church. It's not this church. Charles Stanley is not going to be there when you lose your job. And Joel Osteen, for a number of reasons, is not going to lead you scripturally in how to deal with the grief of losing your mother. And Alistair Begg will never utter any one of your names in prayer. Your pastors are here to care for you. And that is the privilege of being a member of a church, is that we are given over to caring for you, to leading you, and thirdly, to admonish you, to exhort you in moral matters, to help guide you through all of the pits and the landfalls that are everywhere in this world. We admonish you. In moral matters, say, this is good, this is not. We give guidance and counsel which accords with Scripture. So these are the the benefits of loving the leaders of the church. The leaders are to give you their labor, their love, and their leading. But there is an important note about this. The care that we give to you, the admonishment that we give, is meant to be kind of couched in the Lord. That our primary purpose as elders who teach and who lead is to guide you and direct you in Scripture. And that means that we might give you wise counsel on a number of other things. Wise counsel that sometimes you will reject. I can't tell you how many times I've stood up here and talked to you about how horrible peaches are, and yet you people are still going to go out and you're still going to eat them. 
hard hearts and lustful stomachs, you'll continue to consume them. And no matter how much good, cogent, careful, and concerned advice I give you, you're still going to do it. And good for you. It's a matter of conscience. It's not a matter of instruction. You're not meant to be like me. You're meant to be different than me. And where we go from peaches to very clear instructions in Scripture and everything in between, there is a judgment call to be made. But the things that we are bent on instructing you in is not on what foods to eat and not on how to comb your hair or not on how to dress, but instructing you in the way of the Lord, in the things of the Lord. And all of this is so that in all things, blessed with privilege and bearing responsibility, we might all live in peace. Can you imagine what churches look like without leaders? How much there must be political maneuvering to get what people want? How much of, of chaos must really reign in those kinds of places? Even in places that have a, a formal sense of leadership, how often have you heard of churches splitting over things like carpet color or the paint that's put on the wall or the type of music that's being played? If we who have the Spirit and are not in peace but in angst with one another, what kind of message do we send to the world outside? No matter how well you speak of the gospel, a church that fights is a church of the world. And no matter how much they might speak about having the Spirit, a church that bickers and that is void of peace quenches that Spirit. And I am incredibly thankful to this congregation. I am incredibly thankful to God for this congregation that they are not like that, that you are not like that. But that doesn't mean that we can't grow in these areas. Let peace abound. Friends, love the leaders of the church. Pray for them. Give them your love that all might be at peace. Secondly, you are to love the laity of the church. I did not say lady, but laity. Lay people, like the people who aren't leaders, however you want to categorize them, but it has to be with L because that's what all my points are starting with, even if Josh hates it. This is the way it works, okay? So it starts with an L, laity. The brothers and sisters who are sitting next to you or six feet away from you, the brothers and sisters who you have bound yourself with, you are to love them. And you are to love them in four ways, according to what Paul says here. You are to admonish them, to encourage them, to help them, and to suffer along with them. And ironically, you do so kind of by being a leader. You'll notice that Paul uses the same verb here that he used for leaders above in verse 12. In verse 12, he talks about those who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And in verse 14, he says, And we urge you, brothers, and that should be brothers and sisters, admonish. That you are to admonish others just as you are admonished by the leaders. In some sense, the entire church is to be nothing but leaders in training. This is the point of having church leaders, is to get others to do the work. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It is not my job chiefly to build up the body of Christ. It is our job collectively. We have different roles in that, different things that we are to do, but it is all of our job. So when you find someone who is idle, you are to admonish them. Now, immediately when we hear the word idle, 
some of us, if we just hear it and we don't read it, we think of I-D-O-L, which is not the right kind of idol. And when we hear idol, we think of one who is lazy, one who is refusing to work primarily, because this particular word and this particular admonishment is going to come up again in 2 Thessalonians, where in verse, chapter 3, verse 10, Paul gives the famous command that if people are not willing to work, then they are not to eat. This certainly is included here. But the word idol does not primarily just refer to those who refuse to work. Certainly those people are idle, but that's not exactly what Paul has in mind here. The KJV has this quite right when it says, warn them that are unruly. That is, warn them who refuse to do what they are responsible to do. Whatever it is that Scripture has called them to, Whatever it is that they ought to be doing that they're not doing, that makes them unruly. They are refusing to do the very things that God has placed them here and given them responsibility to do. Whether that is that they refuse to work or they refuse to honorably submit to leadership, whether they refuse to listen to biblical counsel, they refuse to reconcile, these are the unruly people. They reject the responsibility in the Lord and they refuse to do what Scripture teaches them. And they ought to be admonished. And not just by the leadership. They ought to be admonished by the membership. It is your responsibility, as much as mine, to keep people admonished and to keep them doing what they are responsible to do. And frankly, when it comes to the issue of work, I am much less concerned with people mooching off of the physical resources of this church, whether it be finances or food, than I am them mooching off of the spiritual nature of this church. That thinking because there are people in here who pray well, therefore they pray well. Or thinking that because they, they are here where people are spiritually healthy, that they are spiritually healthy. And simply because there are people in here who take the word of God seriously. That for some reason they take the word of God seriously. When, as Spurgeon once said, they probably have enough dust on the Bibles in their house to write the word condemned on it. Friends, it is all of our task to admonish those people. To say, friend, you have responsibility. This is what you must do. These are the requirements that are placed upon you. Admonish the idol. But we also encourage. We encourage the faint-hearted. One wishes that they, they might have kept this more literal. The small-souled. Those who have have shriveled up souls who are barely getting by. They, they, they barely seem to be able to keep their head together for the Lord. This word that's translated encouraged has this idea of coming alongside. You get the, the picture of putting your arm around them to help encourage them and strengthen them. It's not much different than the picture we get from the next idea that we are to help the weak Again, the weak, those people who always seem teetering or tottering on the very edge of losing their faith the weak who, who don't know how to navigate their way through the world and feel crippled because of it. You are to help them. That word help also has the idea of holding fast. Notice how physical both of those pictures are. You come alongside somebody and you grab their arm, you hold them fast and you help them. And reading through these two and thinking through them, I was, I was left with the picture of a race. That you and I as Paul often uses the metaphor for the Christian life, are in a race. And we are running with strength and speed. We are running 
as fast as we can with all of our ability to finish the race well, to land at the feet of Jesus Christ. And so as people fall, as people lose the fortitude to go on, as people lose their strength, as people get tired and they want to bow out, you come alongside them and you grab their arm and you hug them and you say, let's go. We will finish the race together. We are not running from a bear. This is not one of those situations where you need to run faster than everybody else so that you're not the one eaten or to club the fastest guy so that you're not the one eaten. But we are all in this together. So we stop and we help and we give aid and we encourage. And thus, Paul says, you must be patient. We must be long-suffering with one another. Listen, friends, there are some of you who have been gifted with a tremendous amount of speed in this race. And you've been gifted with a tremendous amount of strength in this race. You are able to be strong in the faith and in heart. And you might feel like you don't need other people. But, lest you be proud, it is right and good to acknowledge that those gifts of speed and strength of faith are gifts that God has given you. And within the church, he has not given you for yourself, but rather for others. Yes, others might slow you down, but you can speed them up. And yes, others might make it hard for you, but you can make it easier for them. So why be impatient with those who lag behind? Why are we impatient with those who are slow to catch up? If it is a gift, if your strength and your speed, if your understanding of Scripture, if your ability to incorporate it into your life, to be molded and shaped by it, is nothing less than a gift of God, how can we possibly throw that in others' face as though it were something that we worked hard for and gained on our own? Sounds much less like a Christian and much more like a trust fund baby looking at the working poor and wondering why they just don't have what he has. Maybe it's because they don't work hard enough when that trust fund baby hasn't worked a day in his life. Friends, how can we be anything but patient when it is all a gift of God? The end result of all of this is that we must be people intent on doing good you are never, Paul goes on to repay anyone evil for evil. And imagine how tempting that must have been for the Thessalonians. As they are persecuted, as afflictions come upon them, how tempting it must have been to when hit on the face, to not turn the other cheek, but rather to strike back, to repay evil with evil. We are not called to do that. We can trust that God's justice will be indeed more righteous than anything that we could give out whether that is deeper in penalty or more gracious than our turning the cheek, we are assured that what God does will always be right, will always be good, will always be true. And therefore, we don't need to repay evil for evil. We don't need to seek vengeance. We can allow God to do the same. And what that does is it frees us up to do nothing but good to people so that we love one another. And that love then spills out to everyone. And it spills out to everyone because thirdly, we also love the Lord of the world who is no less the Lord of the church. This is seen in this passage 
by two things, how we talk to God and how we hear from God. We talk to God first by rejoicing always. We know that this life is tainted with pain and grief and sorrow. We know that that's true. Paul tells us that you are indeed to grieve. When, when your church member dies and it hurts you, it is okay to grieve, but you cannot grieve as others do without hope. And so we are always to rejoice. God has left us with a great hope of something better than this place. There is never a reason for us not to rejoice. There is always hope. There is always joy in Christ. And therefore, we can always rejoice, knowing that not only will sorrow be taken away, but that sorrow will indeed be explained to us, and it will be allowed, and indeed it must grow into an even greater blessing. Secondly, we pray without ceasing. God is everywhere with us. Jesus has promised to be near us. He says, where two or three are gathered, and I will always be with you. The Holy Spirit is everywhere present with us because he has indwelled us. God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, follow us around. There is no place where we can go to be away from him, but he is always with us. So imagine being with someone consistently and constantly and them never talking to you. And God is there. So talk to him. Pray to him. Let us make it a habit to pray without ceasing. It doesn't need to be formal. God doesn't need your formality. He is your father. You get to call him Abba. Speak to him. Pray about those things which you hate. Pray about those things which frustrate you. Pray about those things that loom large over you. Pray about those things that seem small and insignificant because your God is big enough to deal with all of it. There's nothing too large for God and there's nothing too small for God. So pray consistently and constantly before him. And lastly, give thanks. Don't just give thanks, but give thanks in every single circumstance, knowing that the circumstances that have been placed before you are placed before you by a sovereign God for your good. Whether that is persecution in the time of the Thessalonians or the relative and abundant prosperity that we have today, those things have been given to us. Paul knows exactly the situation that he's writing into. And so these instructions are incredibly difficult for the Thessalonians. Are you persecuted? Give thanks to God for all that he gives you in his kindness. Are you afflicted? Give thanks to God that you will one day be relieved of it. Are you sick? Give thanks to God that you now know better what it means to have everlasting life. Are you frustrated? Give thanks to God as a God who can flatten mountains and raise up valleys so that your paths might be straight. Are you sad? Give thanks to the ever-joyous God who desires your happiness and will one day give it to you more abundantly than you can imagine. Are you glad? Give thanks to God in every circumstance. The reason is that this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ because Jesus came for you. He has given you his life and all that you could hope for and more. So how can we be anything but thankful for what he has given us? So first, we are to love God in how we talk to him. And secondly, then, we also love God in the way in which we hear from him. 
Verses 19, 20, 21, and 22 are difficult verses, and they are filled with things that can certainly take up much time for us. These verses can be abused in multiple different ways, so we must be careful to avoid saying too much from them because we really don't know the historical situation that Paul was writing into. We don't know what exactly he means by quenching the Spirit or by what way they were handling the prophecies that were there among them. But we also then can't turn around and say too little and miss the quite clear implications of what Paul was talking about. When Paul says, do not quench the Spirit, I truly believe that what he is doing is then exemplifying what he means by this in verse 20 when he says, do not despise prophecy. What does it mean to quench the Spirit? It means to despise prophecy. And that means that we must define what prophecy is. And again, here, much to debate, much to talk about. There are some things that can be said without going too deep into the weeds. Prophecies are, at the very least, utterances given by people that came to them by direct revelation from God. Now, when we say direct revelation from God, what we don't necessarily mean is that they heard a voice in their head and then spoke what that voice said. It could very well be that they just felt led to say that, okay? And so, you have been in a situation where someone has talked like that to you, where they've said, hey, I felt led to tell you, or I felt led to talk to you. I've had numerous situations where I have heard of people acting like this. Things that they have no reason for believing might be important to this other person, but nevertheless, it was laid on their heart to say it. That could be a prophetic utterance. This would have been especially important in the New Testament, and especially important at the time that Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, which is likely the first book in our New Testaments. If it's the first book in the New Testament, you realize what the Thessalonians didn't have in their hands when they were going through the ups and the downs of life. They didn't have a New Testament. They had an Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. And so the gift of prophecy would have been especially poignant for them to be able to, to understand exactly what God's will was for them. Such prophecies may have had future in mind, but not always. Oftentimes, even in the Old Testament, prophecies were simply God-provided interpretation of already given texts. So if you go through and you read Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or any of the prophets, whether minor or major, you'll often find that what they're doing is simply explaining what happened a long time ago, primarily in the book of Deuteronomy or in Leviticus or in Genesis. Now, whether these prophecies can go on today is another controversy. And I, as much as any, have wavered as I've thought through this. At least currently, I have no reason to believe that God has ceased from allowing stuff like this to happen. Others do disagree with me on that. These are tertiary matters and no reason why we cannot be in a church together and disagree on these things. And while I might disagree with those people technically, I agree with them in spirit when they look around the church and they say, much of the use of these so-called gifts by the Spirit have been overheated and overused and abused within churches. To that I would offer a hearty amen. And what's more, my take on this is that because the New Testament is now complete, that would limit the usefulness and indeed the necessity of prophecies compared to a time when it was incomplete. God has told us what he wants to tell us. So I do think that we need to heed these verses, but we need to do so carefully. 
Paul's instructions mean that we are not to ignore, to sideline, or to skip past prophecies because to do that would be to put out, as it were, the fire of the Spirit and to despise the prophetic gift the Spirit has given for the building up of the church. But that doesn't mean that every idiotic thing that every nutcase has to say to us is something that we ought to take as biblical revelation. So on one level, relating to the Spirit and how God gives us information from the Spirit is really easy. First, if it refuses to be tested, if people stand before you and say, thus saith the Lord, and out of their mouth comes something, and you say, hey, I want to test that by Scripture, and they say, well, there's no reason. I know that it's true. You shouldn't do that. You don't have to do that. Please don't do that. Listen, ignore them immediately and completely because whatever has spoken to them wasn't the Spirit because the Spirit led Paul to say, test prophecies by something we would understand that to be his own revelation later in the Bible or throughout the Bible. So if it refuses to be tested, you can get rid of it out of hand. Secondly, if it, ref- if it is tested and it fails the test of Scripture, if it breaks the main doctrines of Scripture or wrecks the meaning of certain texts, you have every right to ignore it. Every right. Friends, God speaks to us today, but he has spoken to us most assuredly in Scripture. And you can lean on your own understanding all you want to, and you can think that God has spoken to you, and you can hear that little voice in your head. The only way you know whether that little voice is God or Satan or the burrito that you ate yesterday, the only way you can know is whether or not it corresponds to the truth of his word. So by doing both these things, by both speaking to God and knowing how we hear from God, we get to prove our love for the Lord. We rejoice, we pray, we give thanks because we know the great work that Christ has done on our behalf. And we trust that he is working out all things according to the counsel of his will. This is the first sign of our love. Knowing what God has spoken to us is true and therefore seeking his aid in all things. The second one is like it. Trusting that God wants to speak to us. Listening to his word, listening to the prophecies that have been given of old. Waiting and interpreting all things on the basis of his most sure word. Love the Lord by listening to him, by talking to him, and by trusting in him. If you have come this far, you might ask, how in the world am I supposed to accomplish all of this? The only people who would come to a text like this, read through it, and hear the things that I just said, and leave thinking, okay, I can do this, are people who have never tried before. Those who have honestly strained for holiness and strained to do the very things that Paul lays out for them. Only they know how difficult these things truly are. The one who pursues holiness, that is the one who understands how difficult the task is. Only the one who has put that burden upon their back knows how heavy it truly is. So, how are we to do this? It's easy. It's the gospel. Because our God is not like all the other gods. All the other gods call for our work to placate them, to make them happy, so that we might be obedient to their wishes and their desires. But just as the leaders work for the people, our God therefore works for us. He is a God who is giving, who is gracious, who is beneficent and kind. 
Our obedience is meant to be a happy and a generous obedience. Not an obedience that buys our salvation or buys God's favor, but rather is a response to it. If our salvation is a gift, if our salvation has been purchased by Christ, dying for our sins and being raised for us, and it is proven by our faith in his past work and indeed in his future coming, then what would God withhold from us? Would he give us the means and then not give us also the ends with it? If he calls us to be holy, would he just say, well, here's Christ, do with him what you will, I hope to meet you halfway, good luck. No, indeed. He gives us both the means and the ends. He brings it to completion. Listen to Paul's assurance on this point. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We are assured, brothers and sisters, that God is not just asking us to meet him halfway. That God is not just giving us a nice head start and then making sure that we do all the work to get us to where we need to go. But rather, the very thing that God asks from us is the very thing that he seeks to provide to us. He comes alongside us in our weaknesses, in our small souls, and purifies us. He encourages us. He cares for us. He admonishes us. He is patient with us. He is always giving us what is good and right and holy. So brothers and sisters, let us all be led in all things by that great assurance. Jesus Christ has died for our sins and he has been raised victoriously for our victory. Therefore, let us press on. Trusting God's word, loving one another, listening to God's word, and trusting always that God will do the work he has promised for he is indeed faithful and he will do it. Let us pray. Father, May we be those true disciples who are known for loving one another with the very love of Christ. May we be those who do as Paul instructed the Thessalonians, who take up your word as truly from you, who pursue Christ even through difficulty and affliction. Where we are weak, our Lord, strengthen us. Where we are strong, may we excel even more. Give these things to us, not for our boasting, nor for our fame, nor for our riches, nor for our power and might. Give us these things so that your praise and great work might be better known in the world and so that your people, called by your name, might be the very body of Christ here in Bay City. We pray these things for your glory and for our good. Amen.